Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Vic. Just want to let you know this episode contains some strong language, so please be advised. In three, two, one. P.B. Siebert always knew her daughter would be a star. Kesha was about two, and I just had this flash that this little kid's going to be, well, at that point in time, it was she's going to be as famous as Madonna. You know, I just had a really strong hit that she was going to be a performing artist. And P.B. was right. Her daughter, Kesha, became one of the biggest pop stars in the world. She's a global superstar. And it's my privilege to introduce Kesha! Kesha has been nominated for Grammys and has put out a couple of number one albums in her career. But before that, it was Kesha's mom, Peavy, who was going to be the star. She was a talented songwriter, writing hits for some of the biggest names in music. But instead of ascending to stardom, Peavy descended into the darkness of addiction. So when PB was raising her daughter, she couldn't deny that her desire to see Kesha succeed was connected to this feeling that she had something to prove. She wanted to be famous, but I wanted her to be famous even more than she wanted to be famous. You know, I would be a liar if I told you I wasn't trying to prove something to everybody, to everybody whose toilet I cleaned when I had to come back here and clean toilets. I can say I've been to the top and I've been to the bottom. I've been in the private plane and I've cleaned your bathroom. I've done it all. PB's had a lot of ups and downs in her life. Addiction derailed her solo career as a musician. But her love of music and writing songs was still there when she emerged in recovery. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. P.B. Siebert says music was always part of her destiny. Even from a very young age, when she was growing up on a farm in Indiana. It was just me and my parents and a bunch of animals. And I just told my mom one day I was going to make records and write songs when I was like two years old. Wow. Like nobody did that in our family. It wasn't like we were a musical family, but I just kind of came in with that destiny, I guess. The singing, I started singing right away and was like, you know, saying at school and saying at church ever since I was, you know, five, six years old. But then, uh, you know, by eight or nine, I started writing. And do you remember that first song you wrote? I do remember it. It's not, it's not a deep song. <laughs> I, it's called My Lover Fell Down the Toilet. It went, my lover fell down the toilet because he was a turd who was formed by a giant with a constipation problem. <laughs> I know it's awful. It's awful. And the fact that I remember it is pretty awful, too. I remember being 
in a closet at home and I wrote that and I thought I was brilliant. PB was just starting to tap into her songwriting prowess and she was having a lot of fun doing it, but she felt really out of place as a kid and found new ways to cope with that. Like I just felt like a complete outsider from day one. I always felt like that person that everybody had been given a set of instructions and somehow I wasn't there for those and I walked in mm. late and I always had this feeling of just looking around like, what do you guys all know that I don't know? It was just a feeling of not understanding. And, you know, it made me feel like for a long time, I used to say I was from another planet, which, you know, I still joke about that, but I just, I think part of the disease of alcoholism and my disease started with food and then morphed into drugs and alcohol. I was just a more person, mm. like more food, more, you know, shopping, more drugs, more alcohol, more whatever. I wanted more attention, more everything. My problem was always more. You know, we can't get enough booze. We can't get <laughs> enough food. We, you know, the, the, if there's cocaine left anywhere, we're going to do it, right? Like, it's, it's just give us whatever you got. Yeah, so addiction is definitely, I do feel like I had the disease. I was born with the disease. I had that, that hole. Like, I never felt quite right. In my little Catholic school, I was a weird little, weird little fucking kid. I really was. Sorry. I, maybe I'm not supposed to cuss. It's a podcast. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> so I was a weird little kid and I just, you know, I didn't fit in. But then I'd get up on stage and sing at like the talent contest or the church. I'd go sing and I was so nervous and shaking that, you know, my pediatrician gave me Valium probably in first grade. I learned very young that if I had any kind of emotional problem, I just needed to go to the cupboard. Mm. If you felt sad, you took this. If you felt nervous, you took this. When I got a little heavy, the, I went in and the doctor gave me diet pills. So this whole up and down thing started you know, mm -hmm. very young. As soon as I got my period, a doctor gave me a prescription for a, a codeine laced and some sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I had my pain relievers, my uppers and my downers all prescribed by the pediatricians. You know, it was always about trying to go up, not too much, but far enough and then come down and then mellow out with some this. It was always this whole uh, chemistry project. So, yeah, yeah, I, you know, the landing gear is what I call it. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're if you're too high, then you get something to bring you down a little. You know, it's, it's, you're always just trying to find that, you know, it's like a, a recipe right? That you're just trying, you're trying to get it perfect. Yes. Yes. When PB was 19, she took her singing and songwriting dreams to Nashville. And she started like a lot of musicians do, you know, waiting tables and getting by before that big break happens. But not even PB could have ever imagined just how much her career would skyrocket after co-writing this song that was recorded by the one and only Dolly Parton. Night, night. 
flames can't hold a candle to you would become a number one hit on the country charts in 1980. It just became a hit, so all of a sudden I go from being this person who is where they were supposed to be to all of a sudden being way farther ahead in a very short period of time than I was mentally prepared for. You know, all of a sudden I went from being the waitress to the person at like the CM, they weren't CMAs back then, but we got like a, a an award the year after that. Johnny Cash and June Carter came up to me and told me how much they love this song. So wow, I'm just you know I feel like a you know like a an elephant in the middle of the you know the fancy banquet. Like I just don't feel like I belong. Life coming at you fast. My gosh, you were still such a young person, a waitress yesterday. I was just not like prepared to be that far. And so I kind of just fell apart emotionally. And just started drinking a lot more because the only way I could go in and be in these situations that I was now in, I was so insecure and so um, felt so unprepared that I had to drink. You know, I would keep a bottle of schnapps in my purse. So when I go into co-writes at nine or 10 in the morning, if it was a big name, I'd like see who it was. And sometimes I'd start shaking before I walked in the co-writing room and I'd just go in the bathroom and slug, you know, quarter of a bottle of the schnapps mm. and then like start to walk out of the bathroom. And if my knees were still shaking, I'd go back in and drink another big slug. Once again, it was, you know, how far down do I need to go to calm my nerves because I'm so insecure? And then how far up do I have to go so I can actually write a song? On top of that, PB was struggling to adjust to married life with her new husband, Hugh Moffat. They wrote the old flame song together. We had a seven-day courtship. You know, we didn't know each other well. I didn't know anything about him. We had this initial, basically I met him on the day that he had signed his record deal. So from that point in time until we got married, you know, and we were drunk the whole time. So how much do you know about a person? So obviously things got to the point where we had decided to split up by about two years into the marriage. And then right before we did, he came back to house and said, how about if we just go out for a year? We had a big old yellow van, said, take the dog and let's go travel around the country and give it one more shot. And me and Hugh and the dog, got Bernard, got in the van and we traveled for a year. And in Denver, as a matter of fact, Hugh's manager, Chuck Morris, ran the Rainbow Room. We'd open up for Chuck and some of his bands at the Rainbow Room and Red Rocks. 
Meanwhile, I was working as at a disco called The Lift. I was cooking food and waiting tables and um, I think Hugh was doing construction work and lo and behold, sometime in Denver, I got pregnant. You know, taking a trip like that, as most addicts know, you know, when you really get in trouble, one thing that a lot of us like to do is, you know, go somewhere new. Yep. So all of a sudden, the problem isn't us. There's something new and exciting. It sounded good and it actually seemed like a great idea, but I just, all it ended up doing is prolonging the inevitable and adding a child to the mix, which I thank God every day for that child. But um, it didn't really change the fact that we were not a very compatible team to begin with. PB got pregnant with her oldest child on that trip, and they eventually moved back to Nashville. It was still PB's goal to be a singer herself, a true pop star. And after a quick break, PB gets her chance at that dream. Support for Back From Broken comes from Step Denver, a nonprofit giving men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome addiction through sobriety, work, accountability, and community. Learn more at stepdenver.org. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. By the mid-1980s, PB's dream of becoming a famous singer was within her grasp. She was in Los Angeles a lot, working on her first record. I would end up in the studio starting Friday night with a gram or two of Coke or whatever, and... Us musicians would just be fucked up the whole weekend and we had the, you know, the pager number of the drug dealer. There was a lot of coke. You know, it's just coke makes you think you're the best thing that ever (laughs) existed, which is kind of what you need when you're in the middle of trying to, you know, do something like that. So, um, it was tumultuous and it was crazy, but like, It was really, you know, it was amazing times and amazing music that came out of it. I had two record companies fighting over me and I was supposed to go in the studio to record with this big producer like the following week. So I think it was a Friday night that that Hugh had called me and said, just kind of out of the blue, that he had fallen in love with Lagan, our son's Montessori school teacher, and that he was going to leave me for her. He was going to bring the Lagan out to me in Los Angeles so he could go spend the the summer with this other woman. He'd let me know at the end of that summer if he was going to stay with her or come back to me, but if it was me, I'd have to 
make some changes in what I was or something to that effect. But that was like one conversation and I left the room, wrote the song Hard Times Ahead. I mean, that just happened in a matter of like an hour. Wow. So like right away, like this heavy life thing is happening right now. And then you're just like, I'm writing this song. I wrote the song like, like literally didn't even talk about it. After that weekend of writing through heartbreak, even though PB was halfway through recording her album and achieving her dreams, she walked away from everything. I literally disappeared. So I no longer had an income or a place to live. This friend of mine, Mark Williams, who was John Williams, the big composer's son, he was playing with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We went and slept in the rehearsal hall in the drum cases for a few nights in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, their rehearsal hall. And this is all the week I'm supposed to be going in the studio to make a record for A&M Records. And I just like ended up looking, found this duplex out in the valley and it was like two, three hundred dollars a month. And I had a mattress in the back of the yellow van and I just went there. And the only person who knew where I was, was a drug dealer. And it was not a pretty scene over there for a while, but, you know, life went on. That, I mean, that's a lot. I was on welfare by that point in time. Like, same person who'd been at awards shows, you know, a couple of years earlier was, you know, I was on welfare. It's crazy. When did crystal meth enter your life? So I couldn't afford cocaine anymore. Yeah, it's cheaper. Meth is cheaper. So basically, I just was doing meth for the next couple of years. Once you've done meth daily for a year, like I would take a little straw full of meth and stick it in my coffee every morning. Yep. And that was my morning coffee. Well, a lot of people don't who don't know what meth is like. I mean, you talk about just putting a little little of it in your coffee, like people put sugar or cream in their coffee. It it just becomes a normal thing to do. You know, I didn't, I was very much of a lone, like a lone drinker, lone drug user. I didn't want company. I wanted to be by myself with my drugs. Mm, Yeah. I was felt so trapped by my addiction. I was felt so like I was in a prison. Mm. Just I was a slave to that addiction. I had no free will, no free choice. It was it was a terrible feeling. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about when you started to bring yourself out of that. What what was it that motivated you to start that process of recovery? Well, you know, the bottom line is 
I decided to have another child, and I went through the pregnancy, and I was not sober. By the time Kesha was probably a year and a half old, approximately, I was having trouble getting meth. I um, had a new dealer in Compton, so I took Kesha. She was in her car seat, in the front seat, of course. That's before we stuck kids in the back seat. And and I had the drug dealer in the passenger seat. She was in the middle, and I was in the driver's seat. And as he's going in to try and cop this meth for me, I look over, and here's this guy with a machine gun pointed at my head. Oh, my gosh. And that was literally the moment when I said, God, if I live and if Kesha lives, if this guy doesn't pull the trigger, I will never do an illegal drug again. The foxhole prayer. (laughs) And, you know, I and that guy, I'm looking at this guy and I'm looking at this guy. And all of a sudden that guy flung the door open and started running. And the guy like slowly cruised up with his machine gun following the guy as he ran up the street. And I like literally look like Starsky and Hutch, you know, doing a, uh, you know, getting out of Compton and getting on that fucking freeway and literally like praying all the way from Compton back to Van Nuys. And, and I kept my word. I never um, did another illegal drug again. Wow. Thank God I had a girlfriend, Mindy, who's still my best friend. I called her up and I said, Mindy, can you take care of my kids for a week or two? So basically she took my kids for two weeks and I like spent two weeks trying to like slowly, you know, slap for like a week and then I would drink pots of espresso. It took about two weeks for me to get up and then I, the first thing I did when I could drive is I would take, I would drop my son off, Lagan off at school every morning, and Kesha and I, who was like, by this point, he was, you know, a little over a year and a half. We go down to this AA club, and we would just sit there and go from one meeting to the next. We dump ashtrays and we'd eat donuts, and it was all these old crew guys, crews from the movies. It was over, like in Universal City. So, like everybody that went there were these old, like gaffers and grips and people like that, that people who'd been, you know, scenery good people, and they were kind of a rough tumble bunch. Kesha, I remember some of her first words were like the Lord's Prayer and keep coming back. Wow. A few years into her sobriety, PB took the kids and moved back to Nashville, where PB started all over again. I t- told my dad, I said, he was still up in Indiana. I said, if that I'll give two years if I don't have a good publishing deal. I'll come back and just do real estate with you and I'll leave Nashville. But it took two years of waiting tables and cleaning houses I mean, I cleaned the toilet for somebody that I helped get their first job. Uh, You know, I waited on somebody that I helped get a job at ASCAP. Like, I really got completely, you know, taken down. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say that I didn't need it because I definitely had a big ego prior to that. At that time, PB was nurturing the talent she saw in her daughter, Kesha. She believed from the time Kesha was just a little girl that she'd be a star. 
For her, it wasn't if Kesha would become famous. It was when. All her entire life, whenever we'd talk, like I remember in kindergarten, she came home one day and she goes, I have something really exciting to tell you. And I'm like, what? She goes, remember how we were going to have the hot pink limo when we go to the Grammys? Well, I've decided it's going to have turquoise on top. <laughs> and so it was never like, are we going to go to the Grammys? No. It was always when we go to the Grammys. No. How, how are we going to get like, <laughs> yeah, what are we going to be in when we get to when we get to the Grammys? That's amazing. And she would draw the dresses she was going to wear to the Grammys. I have pictures of her and her kitty cats on the way to the Grammys. And, wow. you know, so it was literally like her entire life. And all my friends and all her friends growing up are like, yeah, you two are crazy. You always said this is going to happen. And it happened exactly the way you said. Kesha was indeed nominated for two Grammys and performed at the show in 2018. Kesha brought PB with her to the event, and PB's been a big part of Kesha's career, not just as her mom, but as a collaborator. PB's co-written some of her daughter's biggest hits, like the song Your Love Is My Drug. The lyrics stand out to me as someone in recovery and someone who's been in love, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I don't care what people say. The rush is worth the price I pay. I get so high when you're with me, but crash and crave you when you leave. I mean, there's a lot of you in that writing. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's why we're such good writers together because she knows me like the back of her hand and I know her like, well, obviously I, I know her better than she knows herself. It's a very, um, it's a very privileged place to share with an artist like that when you get to work with them and write from that point of view, like you have to know somebody to really write a song for them. You've been through so much together. Right. Um, yeah. And let me just ask you, I mean, how big of a of a trip is it to to, you know, knowing just X amount of years ago, you're, you're you and Kesha, little baby Kesha are going to these AA meetings together yeah. and now you're writing songs and you're going to the Grammys together. It's crazy. I mean, I don't think I've ever really processed it fully, to be honest with you, because when you say that. It sounds amazing, and I'm trying to think of it from an outsider's point of view, and I'm like, wow, that is amazing. But, like, I don't think I've ever, you know, really thought of it from an outsider's. You know, once that fame thing started to um, swirl, it's like a tornado, and it kind of, fame is like a tornado that sucks everything in around it, and depending how close you are to it is going to be how... Um, how discombobulated your life mm. will become. It's not a good thing. It's mm. not a healthy thing. It's not a nice thing. There's nothing nice about fame. You know, from a point of view of 
of recovery, it's a terrible thing because it makes you think somehow you're special. There's a different set of rules for you. Everybody else has to follow these rules except for you. Ego, yes. It's an ego. It's a, you know, it's just like gasoline on the fire for an ego, which is the exact opposite of what you want in recovery. PB was sober for 19 years from that first AA meeting she went to in LA up until 2007 when she relapsed. Several years later, PB and Kesha both went to rehab, PB for her addiction and Kesha for an eating disorder. Their relationship was strained for a while, but they never stopped writing songs together. That's always been our one gift that we've had. We've written our way through it, and, you know, that was a lot of times my only really heartfelt contact with her for years. It's taken, you know, it's almost nine years. I'm going to have nine years sobriety uh, January 13th. And I'd say it's taken um, that whole time. It really, you know, and a lot of it had to do with I hadn't taken the responsibility for things like not being sober when I was pregnant. It's something I'm very ashamed of. But, you know, it's shit you go through. And when you've got addiction in a family, it can tear families apart. And I feel pretty lucky that, you know, if we're out of the woods on it now, uh, you know, I feel like we're getting toward the end of it. We just spent a couple of weeks together and like, you know, when our idea of doing having good time together is ordering like Takaya, the, the, you know, Mexican food and watching White Lotus. Like that's a really great time for us and petting the cats. Let me just ask you, how do you feel about your recovery nowadays? Oh, I feel great. I feel really like I have a great sponsor. I'm, you know, still doing these hardcore ninth step. They're pretty deep work, but you know, I feel like my recovery's good. I have a great home group. I go to Al-Anon, so I'm getting all my bases covered. PB's recovery was instrumental in her starting a nonprofit that saves the lives of homeless dogs and cats in Central America. It's called the Magic Mission, where PB raises money to help get animals spayed, neutered, and adopted. To bring more attention to the Magic Mission, PB dug through some old songs she wrote back in the 1980s for that album that she walked away from. Well, now she's releasing them for the very first time. I was very devastated at the idea that I had these songs that I loved so much. And I finally had like managed to um, put something down on tape that I thought was what I wanted. And then I like disappeared and sort of blew my own career. I really grieved that for years. So it's really kind of like digging a dead person up, Mm. you know, to like have these songs, like who would have known, you know, 30 years ago or 1985, that's how many years, I guess that's almost 40 years ago. Who would have known almost 40 years ago that there would be the ability to put this stuff out just on your own 40 years later? And I'm very grateful for, you know, all of it, even the hard times. I mean, I know better than to think that anything good would be happening in my life if I hadn't been through those those rough times. 
but like it makes everything even more joyful and beautiful now. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with addiction, you can find a list of resources on our website, backfrombroken.org. Back from Broken is a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producer today was Emily Williams. Find a list of all the folks who worked hard to make this episode in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org. Support for Back From Broken comes from Step Denver, a nonprofit giving men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome addiction through sobriety, work, accountability, and community. Learn more at stepdenver.org.